We are making our way through the book of Luke in here on Sunday mornings. We took a two-week break as Joel preached on Palm Sunday and then I preached on Easter last week, but we're back. And today is actually part two of a message I started three weeks ago entitled Forgiving, Living, and Giving. And the first week, we only got through the forgiving part. But today, we're going to make our way through the living and giving part, and I'm actually going to start with the giving part. I want to read one verse from Jesus' famous Sermon on the Plateau, which is very similar to a Sermon on the Mount, but it's found in Luke 6. Let's read just verse 38 to start with. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is probably one of the most misunderstood and misused verses in all of the Bible, okay? I'm going to talk about giving for a little bit, but please don't freak out. Most people, as soon as they hear a preacher mention the word give or giving, they kick into this self-protective mode, and they're thinking to themselves, oh, hell's bells, here comes the guilt and shame, okay? I understand that reaction because some of the worst sermons in the history of the church have been preached not only with this verse, but on the topic of giving. Things like, give to this particular church or religious organization, give And I'm telling you, good things will happen to you. Cadillacs will appear in your driveway as though by magic. I mean, I'm telling you, give and it will get even better for you. You'll get even more. But if you don't give, bad things will probably happen like a fairy will die somewhere or something. I don't know. It's not quite that weird. Actually, it is that weird and even weirder sometimes, all right? That's not where we're going today. This verse has nothing to do with guilt and shame. It's all about the the freedom and the good news of a generous God. Now, I've told you before in here that God is generous at his core. Generosity isn't just something God does. Generosity is who he is. It is an avid description of him. God has been a mutual, self-giving relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit for all of eternity. God is so generous that ancients believed that his first act towards humanity was actually one of generosity. Remember I used this word in a, in a sermon in the past, zimzum. It's a very phonetically pleasing word, okay? And what it means is this, that before anything else existed, all there was was God. Imagine that. God took up all the available space. And in order to make room for creation, in order to actually make room for planets and stars and plants and animals and people and earth, he had to shrink down to make room for that creation to take place. He had to make space for them. That divine shrinking was called zimzum. That's what it's called. So, God is so generous, the first thing he did for humanity was he gave us something. He gave us space to exist. God's generosity was not just a one-time thing, though, at the genesis of life. It's an ongoing thing. We're the recipients of God's generosity every single day of our lives. That flower you smelled, or that flower you saw blowing off into the wind yesterday, okay, like all of our tulips, that is a gift. That relationship you're in right now, that's a gift. That beautiful piece of music that inspired you, that's a gift. That piece of art that was so creative, that's a gift. Actually, the breath you just took in listening to me, that's a gift. We didn't have to have any of these things. God gave them to us because he's generous. No wonder John 3.16 is one of the most famous verses in the Bible because it starts off, For God so loved the world that He gave. 
God isn't just generous. God is generous at His core. It's who He is. So we know God's generous. Why should we imitate Him in His generosity? Why should we be generous? This is not where the guilt comes in. This is where the good news comes in. This is so fun. Let me tell you some good things that will come into your life when you participate in generosity. First of all, if you're writing notes, just write this down. Generosity leads you closer to God. To be generous isn't just a nice thing to do when you're generous to somebody. To be generous is actually to participate in who God is and to participate in what he's up to in the world. So every act of generosity on your part, okay, whether that's a big act or a small act, is actually a step into or a journey into the awareness and presence of God. Did you catch that? I want to say it again because I really want you to catch this. Every generous act you participate into is a step into the awareness and the very presence of God. So, think about it. We've all met people who are so godly, we would describe them maybe as a saint or as holy. And that's an avid description. That's perfect, okay? Now, what do all the people that we know that are saintly have in common? Perhaps a lot of things, but one thing is definitely this. They are generous. You will never meet a greedy saint ever in your life. All of them are generous because they figured out the truth in this point. In order to get as close to God as they have gotten, they had to be generous because it's one of the main things that draws us closer to his presence. So that's the first thing that's great about generosity. The second thing is this. Generosity is what God blesses. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but after a tragedy, either in our city or in a family or even in our nation or the world, after some kind of catastrophe, people naturally want to open up their hearts and give. They give in any way they can. Sure, they give money or they give scholarships, donations, they give rides, they give meals, they give flowers. They give to people whom they've never even met before. They give to people who they probably never will meet. And when you watch people participate in that kind of generosity, it's inspiring. You look at them and go, way to go. You want to just cheer them on and you want to participate with them. And you think, that is the right thing to do. Yes, it's the right thing to do. And I'll tell you why. Because to be generous, when you're generous, you can sense God's pleasure and his blessing all over your life and those generosity and that generosity you're involved in. It's right because you know it's of God. Jesus is quoted by Paul as saying this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Of course Jesus would say that because he's the blesser and he knows that when you are generous, when you are giving, he's going to bless that. So he's going to tip the scales. Of course he's going to say it's more blessed to give than receive because he's going to make sure your life is more blessed when you give than when you receive. So God's blessing is on our generosity. You can sense his good pleasure and favor on it. Thirdly, generosity opens us up to abundance. In the verse we just read, we're told that generosity somehow opens the door for God to be even more generous to us than he was before. And God gives to us in these packed down, heaping helpings of goodness. Okay? God gives to us in that way. He doesn't scrimp when it comes to serving up his goodness to us. You should know this about God. He loves abundance. He's not the God of scarcity. He's the God of abundance. I was teasing with my sister-in-law. She was telling me about a restaurant she went to not too far from here, and she ordered a cocktail, 
and it was $12, and it came in the size of a melon baller. It was like one little sip, and it was $12. I think at his core, God goes, yeah, I hate that. I hate it when people scrimp on anything. I hate things in small amounts. For $12, you should get a cocktail as big as this guitar, okay? Something like that. And I love restaurants where I order a burrito, like I'm, I'm looking at Jay. We often go to Confusion and places like that, because when you order a burrito, it's enough for like three meals, okay? I don't like it when you order a burrito and it's like an hors d'oeuvre, okay? I like abundance. So does God. He's not the God of scarcity. He's the God of more. Think of it like this. On a clear day in Oregon, not lately, but on a clear day, we can see roughly 5,000 stars with our naked eye, okay? Right now you can see like three, (laughs) okay? But on a clear summer day, you can see about 5,000. And yet in our galaxy alone, there's somewhere in the proximity of 4 billion stars. What kind of creator would create so many stars, such, such a numerous amount of stars that most people wouldn't even ever see? They're not even going to ever even notice them unless they buy a telescope. A creator, a God who loves abundance, that's who would make that many stars. Check out this verse. This is out of the book of John, chapter 10, verse 10. And this is Jesus talking. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That word full in most of your Bible translations is actually that word in abundance. It's that word abundance again. It's actually the Greek word parathon. I'll put it up on the screen so you word freaks can look it up later, okay? Parathon. I wrote down the meaning of this word. This word is a Greek word that's like, it means so much more than you ever think. It means this exceedingly, very highly, beyond measure, superfluous, a quantity so abundant as to be considered more than one would ever imagine or even expect. That's what that one word means in Greek, okay? So we might say Jesus came to give us so much life, it's life in a ridiculous amount. Science tells us that the faster we travel, the slower time goes. So if you travel at a high enough rate of speed, you actually won't age. Theory relatively. I actually asked Matt to explain it to me, who's a physicist. I don't get it. I don't get how if I traveled at a rapid enough speed, my body wouldn't age. My brain cannot wrap itself around it, but I trust the science of it. I trust that that's true because people like Einstein are smarter than me, and I believe that. Except for street smarts, I think I'm more streetwise than Einstein would have ever been, okay? But all that to say, I trust the science of it. According to the verse we just read in Luke, when we empty ourselves through our generosity, we get fuller. Did you catch that when you read that? When we empty ourselves through our generosity, we get fuller. On the surface, that doesn't make sense. That's like saying 8 minus 2 is 20, okay? That doesn't make sense. As I give, I get. That never seems to happen. Yet I've experienced it in my life, and I know it to be true. When we are generous, we end up with ridiculous amounts of life poured into us. And lastly, generosity is an important part of community. Luke not only wrote the book of Luke, he is believed to have written the book of Acts that's in the Bible. In fact, many people consider it to be one long book. Luke-Acts, they call it. Luke was what happened until Jesus... Um, resurrected on Easter, and the book of Acts is what happened after Easter. And look at the story he makes sure he includes in Acts chapter 2. I'll pop this up on the screen and read this for us. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So here's this group of Jesus followers shortly after the first Easter morning. And what are they doing? They're gathering together in community, in close-knit, generous community, sharing all of their stuff. That's how it goes. You see, God's love takes you somewhere. And this is where God's love will always take you. Following Jesus is a journey. And it takes you into community with the believers around you. A community that is glued together by generosity. Greed separates. Generosity always incorporates. There's a quote from the Brothers Karmatsov, which some of you read in literature class. I want to put it up on the screen. And it says this, Hell, what is hell? Hell is the suffering of being no longer able to love. And I found that to be so true. To be greedy is really to experience um, a hellish life, a hell on earth. But to be generous is to let heaven infuse your life and experience a heavenly life right here, right now. And true community, by the way, when you read through the scriptures, is always open-ended. It's always inviting people who are outside to be inside. It's purposely and radically inclusive. And check this out. Our generosity towards people is one of the things that draws them into the community we were talking about. Because who doesn't want to be around generous people? I was reading recently, it was so funny to me, this young couple that got married, and they're both opera singers, and so they moved to San Francisco, but if any of you have lived in, in bigger cities, it's hard for them to find an apartment. They searched everywhere, finally found one in the Haight District, and they're so excited about this new apartment. It's like, finally, we found some places affordable we can live and get on with our lives. And so the first couple of days they were there, they ran into their neighbor that just lived down the hall just a little bit, and her name was Shirley. And they put a little Christian fish, you know the Christian fishes, those little signs of being a believer, on their door. It was no big deal, just a little emblem there. And Shirley comes up and goes, are you believers? And they were so excited, they thought, oh, we're going to meet another Christian in San Francisco, too, this is going to be so great. What a great way to start. And, and they go, yes, we're believers. Are you a believer too? And she answered kind of shockingly. She goes, yes, I'm a believer in Satan. And at first they thought, are you joking, right? You're just like messing with us. Totally serious. And it wasn't funny after a while because her dark face kind of made life miserable for him because what she did, she went about trying to really get at them. So every day she would leave a daily curse on their doorstep as they left their apartment. And that curse, he said, it was kind of intimidating to walk out your door into the hallway every day, and there was a daily curse written out there, complete with some dead animal parts laying around too. Every day, how's that? It's like, welcome wagon, welcome to the neighborhood, here's your dead animal parts and your personal curse, okay? But they decided, hey, we're going to combat this with generosity. So they fired up their oven and they started making cookies. And they brought chocolate chip cookies to her every day. So there's this weird kind of dance going on. She would leave the daily curse and animal parts, and they would leave cookies and baked goods every morning. It was kind of a trade. Not a good trade, but it was a trade. Then after a while, something broke in her, and Shirley didn't leave a daily curse, left a little letter on their door, and they opened it up thinking it was just a written curse, and she'd ran out of dead animal parts, right? And so she opens it up, and she's reading, and it says, she, she goes, I've never met people like you. If you're what this Jesus stuff is all about, I'm interested. Let's talk. So something broke in her, and that's how it goes, okay? 
Generosity, even in small amounts, is so powerful. It's much more powerful than we think. It's powerful enough to lead people who are involved in darkened lives of any kind into the light of God. Wow! Okay, that is such good news. Now, I realize that generosity is a tough concept for us because we live in the United States. We live in a country with 4% of the world's population, yet 41% of its wealth. And greed has become like a national religion in the United States. To be generous, we've got to go against the flow. We've got to go against the grain. And it's totally worth it, even though it's tough. I mean, think about it. We always search for more ways to get money, don't we? We search for jobs that will pay us more money. We search for investment tips. We search for houses we can buy and then flip and sell them for more than we bought them. We, we want to buy cars that are low in price and so we can turn and sell them for more money than we bought them. We're always doing that. We should be equally as creative and energetic in looking for ways to give. Sure, we can give our money, but that's just the obvious way. There are other options, too. We can give our time. We can give volunteer hours, or we can give our attention. Look what Simone Weil, she's um, a... I mean, he's a great theologian, said this, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. That is so true. To make another person feel like they're the only person in the world that matters is an incredibly generous act. As the pastor here, I know this begs the question, well, do you want us to give here? Of course I want you to give here, okay? I've got to be honest with you. I give here. My wife and I give here. We give a tenth of our income right off the top to this church in the, in the biblical process of tithing. We do that because I trust that God can do more with 90% or with 10% of our income than I could do with 100%. I mean, he just, it's an act of faith for me. But more than that, we give to this community because we believe in what God's doing in and through this faith community. So, of course, I want people to give here. But mostly, I just want you to give. I just want you to lead, to lead generous lives because I do deeply care about you and generosity is the best way to live. It is just the best, okay? Now let's move on to living. Speaking of living, I want to read a couple more verses from Luke chapter 6, further down in the chapter. This is Jesus again. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. That makes sense. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. As a good man brings good things out of the good things stored up in his heart, an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A few weeks ago I mentioned that Jesus is actually a Jewish rabbi. Jewish rabbis at the time would go around instructing people about the scriptures, but more importantly, they would instruct people on how to live out the scriptures, how to flesh it out. They would, they would teach them how to live in their particular way of life. A rabbi's teaching was called their yoke. I'll show you a picture of what a yoke actually is. It's a farming implement, and it, it links two oxen together so that they will plow in the same direction instead of separate directions. So your field won't look like a spiral graph, but it'll look like orderly, okay? It's a very helpful farm tool. Well, a rabbi's teaching was called its yoke. Jesus told his followers, don't worry my yoke is light. He was saying, my teachings won't weigh you down with a bunch of religious rules and regulations and rituals and guilt and shame and remorse. It'll have none of that, okay? In these verses, Jesus is placing his yoke upon the people, and he's showing them how to live. He's showing them how you can be connected to and harnessed to my way of life. 
And in fact, ancient Christians were referred to as followers of the way because of that. And his way involves producing good fruit. This is super cool because most people assume that Jesus' teachings were all about showing how people can get into heaven. If you want to follow the teachings of Jesus, it's all about Jesus showing you how you can punch your ticket to the afterlife. No, not even close. Ancient Jews like Jesus didn't even, weren't even concerned with the afterlife that much. They really didn't focus on it. They're much more concerned about the here and now. That's where Jesus is at in these verses. He wants people to have such good, rich lives that they produce the fruit of good deeds and good words here and now, not then and there. And that is a big deal. Because, see, I believe that every human being on this planet has faith. I do. I believe that every single human being even the most diehard atheist has faith in a small nugget, and that's been deposited in their life by God. Now, I believe that faith can be covered up in layers of doubt and fear and confusion or bad experiences with church or church people, but I believe it's there. Now, some people think, well, what's going to uncover that buried faith is a bunch of information and arguments. And so they try to shout, and shame people into a life of faith. There's a bunch of well-meaning Christians that go around finger-pointing at people, condemnation-breathing, and they're shouting at them. They seem angry all the time, and they thump their Bibles around, and they think that's going to bring people into a life of faith. And it doesn't. All they succeed in doing is burying that faith in more and more levels. Because when you have an interaction with a person like that, after the interaction, all you're thinking is, Screw you and your God. I don't want anything to do with either one of you. That's what you're thinking. But fruit-bearing people who are living out the way of Jesus, whose lives are full of good deeds and, and good words, their lives aren't repulsive like that. Their lives are so attractive. I, was, I came across a picture of a few actors and actresses and a couple of musicians that had had plastic surgery done. And there are people that were really famous when I was growing up. And I looked at their faces... And I'm not trying to be mean. I mean, these are beautiful people. These were beautiful people, okay? I'll say it that way. They were such beautiful people in the day. And I look at their face now, I go, it looks like your face was heated up to a melting point, and then you were placed in front of a large fan. Because it looks like you just got blown backwards, like you're a dog who's sticking its head out the windows going 110 miles an hour. If I knew them, I would actually say to them, you need to go to your surgeon and have them put your old face back, okay? And get your money back in the process because this is not good. This windblown look is not good for you. It's not attractive anymore. People who live in the way of Jesus are so attractive. You've met many of them. You are them. People who live in joy despite dire circumstances, their joy somehow transcends their troubles, so attractive. People who forgive instead of carrying around bitterness, so beautiful. People who are generous like we just talked about, people who serve others instead of just themselves, oh my gosh, they're so beautiful. They have this inner beauty that radiates out of them, but more importantly, that beauty helps the people around them uncover their buried faith. Jesus once said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what he's saying is, when you watch the way I live, you'll know what God is like. When we are harnessed to the ways of Jesus, when we live life in his way, under his yoke, 
It is so amazing when we're fruitful instead of prickly, we're doing the same thing. Our lives are showing people what God is like. Our lives become a stage that He is displayed on and people be attracted to the God they see in us. And more than that, their faith will start to get uncovered by the God they see in us, by the beauty they see in us. It is easy to convince people of a, of a thing. Like this podium here, uh, I can convince you that it exists because you can see it, you can touch it, you can watch me move it. It has thingness, okay, so to speak. But God is beyond our description. He's beyond boundaries. He has no thingness about Him. We can't prove His existence to people, but we can allow Him to take the stage of our life and they can see Him in the beauty of our good deeds. Now, one small word of warning, and I'll end with this. Some people won't like the fruit that they see God produce in your life. They won't like the fruit of your good deeds. My wife and Debbie Howler, one of her closest friends, each don't like a fruit that I like. Debbie doesn't like strawberries. I know, totally sacrilege, right? And my wife doesn't like mangoes. I don't understand that at all. I think the best kind of fruit salad in history is strawberries and mangoes, just those two fruits, okay? Maybe add a grape in there or something, but that's about it. To me, strawberries and mangoes are like, they're like the royalty of the fruit kingdom. They're like the fruit hall of fame. It's weird to me that there's people out there that don't like strawberries and mangoes. There's going to be people, when you display the beauty of God, when you display good works, they won't like that fruit. That's just how it goes. That's how it was true with Jesus. Here's some great advice for you. I'm going to have to read it because it's kind of small font. We couldn't figure out how to get big font. This is straight from Mother Teresa, a very famous quote of hers. Let me read this. Just soak this in. Oh, I love this. People are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you <clears throat> excuse me, of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. What you spend years building, someone can destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you are honest, people might cheat you. Be honest anyway. If you find happiness, people may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have and may it never be enough. Give your best anyway. For you see, in the end, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. And what I want to say to you is you will produce good fruit in your life. You'll produce good words, good deeds in your life. Some people will see that and reject it, like my friends and family reject strawberries and mangoes, but bear fruit anyway.